Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So when I was in school, I was training to become an engineer. I went to University of Missouri Rolla and was getting a degree in engineering. And so broadly speaking, most of my coursework looked something like this. Physics 103, mechanics of materials, chemistry, calculus, and I forget all the rest of them, which is probably why I'm not an engineer anymore. Probably a good thing I'm not, because I don't even remember the names of my classes, much less what I talked about in them. But I do remember my first year, all of the, no matter what your, your course of study was, every student in their first year had to have a couple of other core curriculum stuff. So you had to have like a history class, and you had to have like uh, a biology class, and you had to have uh, an English class. And so I had an English class my first year where I studied uh, English literature slash creative writing. Because they figured, you know, you got to have both of them. We'll just squish them together because you engineers aren't going to use it anyway. I'm a pastor now, and I creatively write and speak, you know, for a living. So it was an important class, even though I may not have realized it at the time. I don't really remember uh, too much about the class. I remember I did pretty well on the English literature side. It was kind of nice to, like, step out of reading about equations and about, you know, physical properties and mechanical things to step into a world of, like, reading about characters and ideas and things like that. So it was kind of nice, kind of a break, and I, and I appreciated the English literature side. And I thought, oh, creative writing, that'll be fun. Ever since I was a little kid, I used to, you know, write little stories and little adventures. You know, I, before the, the new Star Wars movie became a thing, I had already completely written the script for the follow-up Star Wars movie as an 11-year-old. So I don't know why they didn't take my script. It was much better. I'll just put that out there. Uh, but my creative writing skills, I thought, were, were excellent. And I come to find out, perhaps not quite so excellent. In this creative writing class, it was actually extremely hard. Um, I remember not too terribly much about it or the things I wrote about, but I remember that I think the highest I ever got on any of my creative writing papers was like a B minus, and I think that was a mercy minus. Um, I think it was one of those things where I, I had an idea that I could write creatively, and I was pretty creative, but I wasn't very well structured in my writing. And my professor, I remember only really one thing about the class, and that was a note that they gave to me. I like to make characters that had a lot of dialogue, and so they would, in quotations, they would talk, and they would say things to each other in quotations, and then I would also write the things that they were thinking behind the scenes in italics, so that you would be able to kind of understand what was going on behind the scenes as well, and my professor let me know uh, that's not the way you do it in, in writing. Um, instead of uh, spelling out everything that people are thinking and saying, instead of doing that, you allow the thoughts that are on their hearts and minds to, to bleed through in their actions and in their words. So instead of, like, John coming home from a long, long day at work and thinking, man, that was a hard day of work, now I sure am hungry, I hope that there's a good meal on the table, and John comes in, says, hi Mary, how was your day? Is dinner ready yet? Mary says, almost ready, dear. And in her mind, she's thinking, it looks like John had a long day. I, I regret not making the steak that he probably really would want, instead making this veggie dish instead. And then that's, that's what I would write. The teacher instructed me, instead of doing that, 
the way to bring forward the, the, the reality of the situation so that it attaches to a reader is that have the reader discover what the character is thinking based on their words and on their actions. So why am I talking about creative writing? You know, what does that have to do with anything? Well, in our gospel today from Luke chapter 13, Luke is an educated creative writer. He's able to get across to the reader what's going on kind of inside Jesus. What's going on in his mind? What's going on in his heart? And it never once says, and Jesus thought to himself, X, Y, and Z. Instead, you see by his words and by his actions and his emotions, they paint a picture for you of what it is that Jesus is saying and, and thinking. And so let's go over to Luke chapter 13, and we'll take a look at it together from 31 to 35. Not a whole lot of verses there. It's pretty much uh, a, short, a short gospel lesson, but there's a lot packed into it. Okay? So in verse 31, we'll just hop right into it. But I want you, as we're reading this, to see those moments where we start to feel and experience what it is that Jesus is thinking in this, in this gospel message. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, and before I say what they said to him, let's talk about that word. That word Pharisee is charged with all kinds of presuppositions for us. We hear the word Pharisee, and immediately our mind goes to teachers of the law, enemies of Jesus, hypocrites, you know, political enemies to, to Jesus and everything he stands for. And that very well could be the case. <clears throat> but, but listen to what they say to him. They say, leave this place and go somewhere else because Herod wants to kill you. Now, I, I would consider you guys to be some people that I trust, my, my friends in the faith. I would hope that if someone was going to kill me, you would have the decency to come up to me and tell me somebody's trying to kill me. And if you did, I would not say, woe to you, you hypocrite, away from me, you Pharisee. Hopefully, I would be like, wow, thank you so much for sharing that with me. And this is what's so very interesting about this, this character of the Pharisees is what's going on in the minds of the Pharisees as they tell Jesus, Jesus, there's someone that's coming to kill you. Well, I've heard three basic ways of describing this. The first one is these Pharisees are not like the typical Pharisees that we hear about. Perhaps they are the friendly Pharisees who truly believe God's word and they hear Jesus and say, Jesus speaks God's word. Let's listen to him. And they actually like Jesus, and they, they know that there's a threat against his life, so they're trying to warn him about it so that he can take measures to avoid it. That could be the case. There are some good Pharisees in the Bible. Nicodemus is one, right? He comes to Jesus with questions. Jesus explains the kingdom of God, shares with him the gospel in a nutshell, John three sixteen, and, and there's a couple others that are pretty good Pharisees. Maybe that's just the small collection of good Pharisees. But I tend to think this is probably not the case. And even if they are good Pharisees, what they try and get Jesus to do showcases that they don't have their mind quite right. Okay? They're trying to get Jesus to go away from the direction he's going. They're trying to get him to veer off the path towards destruction that he's headed on. There's a second way of describing perhaps who these Pharisees are, and maybe these are the normal Pharisees who are always following Jesus, trying to get him to say something or do something that they can pin to him so that he will be uh, killed for blasphemy or for some other sin. 
And so they, they come up to Jesus and they realize Jesus is starting to gain a lot of following. He's starting to get a lot of political clout as well as spiritual clout. He's starting to get more and more people listening to what he has to say and the Pharisees don't like it. And so they're trying to do whatever they can to try and get him to turn away from this path towards like greatness that he seems to be on. And so they warn him, Jesus, someone has tried to kill you. Are you sure you want to go that way? Are you sure you want to go to the temple and the, and the, the, the hill where the capital city, the kingdom of God is? I, I, you probably don't want to do that. Herod's trying to kill you. This could be the case. This could be what's happening here. <clears throat> There's a third way that says perhaps these Pharisees were like messengers sent from Herod to warn him, to threaten him with death. Herod had killed John the Baptist. Herod sees Jesus as a replacement John the Baptist and does not like some of the things he has to say. And he says, Jesus, you're a holy man. Here's my cadre of holy men. Stop doing what you're doing or I'm going to kill you. Maybe that's what's going on. Either way, regardless, it's the Pharisees coming to Jesus with a message for him saying, Herod wants to kill you. Go the other way. What does Jesus have to say to this? When Jesus heeds these warnings, he replies in verse 32, Go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow and on the third day. I will reach my goal. Hopefully, some alarm bells just went off in your head, Christians. Jesus just said something about the third day. What do you think he's talking about? Well, the people standing around listening to Jesus wouldn't have had any idea, really, about what it was he was talking about. They would have been like, huh, apparently Jesus has some kind of goal, and not today and not tomorrow, but the day after tomorrow, he's going he's gonna to fulfill that goal. I wonder what he means by that. For us Christians in 21st century America, <clears throat> with retrospect and hindsight being 2020, we hear that phrase, on the third day I will reach my goal, and we go, What's the third day? Easter morning when Jesus conquered death, conquered the grave, rose from the dead, and gave new life to us. Jesus here is prophesying. He's prophesying. He's saying, you know, you guys, you Pharisees, for good or for ill, are trying to get me to deviate from my path. I have a mission, and that mission is I will continue to do the work God has given me to do today, I will continue to do the work he has called me to do tomorrow all the way until I reach the third day. And on that third day, I will raise from the dead and I will bring all of the dead with me. Okay, so he has a mission and he's keeping his face aligned to the mission of God. He's keeping his heart oriented on the mission of God. He's not allowing anything, no threat of death, no concern of loved ones, no false teachers or military authorities or governing authorities are going to allow him to deviate from his mission and his purpose. <clears throat> then, well, hold on, let's go back. He also talks about Herod as a fox. Okay, he says, go tell that fox that I will do these things. So why do you think he chooses the fox, right? Why not that slug? Why not that worm-ridden filth, that scruffy-looking nerf herder, for a Star Wars reference. Why not something like that that really is truly an insult? I mean, fox, I mean, you could kind of get away and say, like, 
hey, that person's a fox, and um, that could mean two, two things, but the, the one thing I'm talking about is cunning, crafty, clever, right? That's not necessarily an insult. But for Jesus and for the Jews at that time, this is an insult. And the reason is that foxes are kind of like seen as scavengers, people who feed secondhand off of the, the kill of another creature, all right, and so he chooses this title of fox for Herod specifically. Herod probably doesn't think of himself as a fox. In fact, the, the kind of heraldic flag on the walls of all of the, the kingdoms would have been the Lion of Judah. And so he probably considered himself to be a lion, right? That's kingly, right? King of beasts, apex predator, Right? The mightiest animal in, in, on the plains, right? And so he has this sort of image of himself, Herod does, of being a lion. But in reality, Jesus says he's, he's not a lion. He's a fox, right? All, the only reason Herod has any authority whatsoever is because he panders and kowtows and grovels to the Romans who are really in charge. And so even though he's maybe a little crafty and cunning, his, his primary attribute is secondary carry-on bottom feeder, okay? It's a pretty good insult. Go tell that fox, I'll continue to do what I do all the way to my goal on the third day. Then he continues in verse 33, in any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day. <clears throat> for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. And so he's pointing towards the third day, but he's also prophesying here that his mission, his purpose, what he set out to do here is very clear. He's going to Jerusalem with one purpose in mind. He's a prophet, surely, but he's going to Jerusalem to fulfill what the prophets do in Jerusalem. First of all, to prophesy against the wickedness of the city, but then to be put to death. And we hear strains of Jeremiah and Isaiah. We hear Elijah. We hear <clears throat> Old Testament prophets who meet uh, untimely and unfortunate ends or are persecuted because of their righteousness in God's eyes in the very city of Jerusalem where God supposedly rules and reigns. And you see this sort of dichotomy between what, is, what Jerusalem should be, this center, this place where God reigns on earth in his temple, in the holy city with the holy people, but instead we see quite the opposite. God's chosen messengers in the form of prophets are put to death there. Then Jesus goes on in verse 34 with what we call a lamentation. <clears throat> He's in his compassion, he feels mourning and sorrow and lament for the people who simply will not return to God, the people who turn away. And so he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. But you were not willing. Here we hear Jesus 
confessing and lamenting and, and calling out towards the people of Jerusalem and mourning that they have chosen not to be gathered into the loving embrace of the Savior. Jesus knows that not everyone in Jerusalem, the city he's about to walk into in a couple of weeks, is going to accept him and regard him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's going to bow down before him and testify to him being the Messiah and the Savior. Instead, he knows that when he goes there, many will reject him. Many will call for his death. We'll say just a few days later, crucify him, crucify him. And when he regards these people, he mourns, he laments. He wants to do something, but he can't. He wants to gather his chicks up into his embrace. And we hear the compassion of Jesus played out in a very maternal and feminine way almost, where he talks about himself as a a lowly hen. Not Not a proud creature at all, but a very humble creature. And one whose instincts are pretty much solely to protect their young. That's who Jesus personifies himself as. He's personified Herod as the fox which will come and prey on the chicks and prey on the hen. And so in calling himself the hen, you see he's admitting he's going to his certain demise. He's going into the den of the foxes. And he wishes he could protect and gather his chicks, but they reject him. And so he says that he wants to gather them together and protect them, but they are not willing. Have you guys ever had a person in your life who has rejected the message of Christ, who has rejected the identity that you have chosen to put onto yourself as a Christian person? Anyone who's ever heard the word of Jesus and said, that's, that's not for me. Anyone who refuses to see the Savior, Jesus Christ, and call and confess his name as Lord. This is something that I think all of us have a relationship in our lives where something like this has happened. And we often wonder, what can we do about it? How can we, how can we reach these people with the love of Jesus? How can we convince them that Jesus is the one who loves them and that his way is, is the way. It's the truth, the life. How can we bring them back into the fold and gather them under the wings of that hen? And the reality is we have to do what Jesus does. He begins by simply mourning the separation, lamenting over the fact that there's some brokenness, rem- r- lamenting over the fact that they have rejected the truth. And then you allow the lament to become joy. Because that's what Jesus does. He laments, certainly, but that's not what defines him. He laments, but he does not stay in his lamentation. He moves forward. And he moves forward with with joy. Even as he marches to his own death, he does so with with joy in his heart, knowing that that path towards death is what will ultimately redeem the sins of all mankind. And so, in like kind, we sort of do the same. We lament over the broken relationships. We lament over the rejection of faith 
that we have, that people have in our lives. We, we, we mourn and we feel sorry that they have fallen prey to the schemes and the lies that this world has to offer. But then we reorient our lamentation towards joy, accomplishing the mission for which God has sent us. We continue in verse 30, uh, 35. Look, your house is left to you desolate, and I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here we see Jesus once again prophesying, once again pointing towards the future and towards the path which lies directly before him that he keeps his face set upon. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Does those words sound familiar? It's from Psalm 118, and it's used again very soon in, your, in the story of Jesus as he advances towards the cross. Does anyone know when it happens? Maybe you know it better this way. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Now do you know when it happens? The triumphal entry. Jesus here is testifying that very soon when he marches into the city, into that holy city where the people of God are supposed to be, but really it's a den of foxes, as he marches forward into his own death, he knows that on that day people will cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Jesus sets himself joyfully, marching forward to accomplish the mission God has sent him to accomplish. And he says, on that third day, I'll accomplish it. The goal will be completed. And that's his final word on the cross. His final word to us is, it is finished. It is finished. He's declaring that the goal he came to do has been fulfilled. And so that's where we find ourselves. When we lament, we turn that lament into joy, actively and, and fervently pursuing the mission that God has set our face toward. What is that mission? Simply following Jesus' footsteps. You all are in the right place this morning to begin that mission as you receive the good gifts of God. A few minutes later, we're going to take communion. We're going to receive Christ's body and blood, which will empower and equip us by the forgiveness of sins to take his gifts into a weary world where we live out our love we live out our faith in love with our neighbors with our family members with those who have rejected him and so as we serve and seek to bring those that are scattered back into the loving protection of jesus we don't do so out of fear for their, for their lives. We don't do so trying to actively pursue them and go after them at all costs. Instead, we lament the separation. We mourn over the fact that they've rejected the truth. And then we set our eyes with joy upon the mission which God has set us out to do. And in that mission, that's where Christ reconnects. That's where the Holy Spirit reengages the faith of those people to bring them back into his loving embrace. And so that's the thing we get to do is to move in this season of reflection and Lent from lament to joy, setting our face on the mission for which God has set us to go. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, God.
knowing that your purpose and your mission is always before us. I pray, O oh God, that you would continue to bless us through the example of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, O oh God, that we would continue to seek to accomplish the will that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.